the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, and here to say good afternoon. Welcome to Thursday, day number two here in a brand-new month of March. And is it difficult for us to believe that we're <laughs> we're two months into... The new year already. Just amazing how time flies. Well, hopefully in your commute tonight, we'll help you uh, get along a little bit easier here in the road ahead. Make the time fly. At least we're going to try to do that. We've got some great topics and guests for you on the program tonight. But I want to start first by uh, discussing a few things related to your personal finances and, and more broadly what's going on in the economy. You know, as we've often discussed on this program in recent months, there seems to be some disagreement amongst top economists as to exactly where the economy is heading in some respects. We continue to see high inflation rates and yet job growth remains robust. And yet, in spite of these issues and some positive signs on Wall Street, although in the last couple of weeks not all that exciting, but nevertheless, it, it seems as if, again, to be a bit of a mixed bag. We've got applications for mortgages at a 28-year low. Not surprising, certainly, here in the San Francisco Bay Area when you look at the average cost of a, um, a moderate two-, three-bedroom um, family home against what we're paying for not only the the cost to purchase that home, but the cost to finance the loan. Ay, 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 ay. You know, two, two and a half percent, you can probably pull that off. When it starts to get in the sixes and sevens, as we've seen recently, it's making home affordability in the Bay Area further and further out of reach. One of the troubling issues, though, that's not being discussed, although Undoubtedly, as we move more rapidly into the election cycle here headed into 2024, we'll no doubt hear both sides say more about the issue of indebtedness, the federal debt, deficit spending. And it's, you know, more of a political pawn than anything else. The truth of the matter is neither party in charge at any time has really given too much serious concern or attention to the federal debt. And the reality is that debt is becoming more and more of a noose around the neck of future generations. You add to it not just the issue of, what, $31 trillion and counting, but then look at individual household debt in America today, and you begin to see a very troubling trend taking place, which has to make you wonder whether or not we're going to reach a breaking point soon, both at the federal level and at the local level in your own personal budget. 
the notable differences at the federal level, well, they can print more money. You and I, well, if you do that, you wind up in jail. Let's get some insights as to where things are right now and uh, just how troubling these trends are. Jerry Moyer joins us, financial economist, public speaker, and the author of Affluent Investor Daily. Jerry, we always appreciate you carving out some time for us to talk a bit about these important issues. And I, I recognize for some listeners, this may be, oh, no, they're talking about money again. But, you know, when we speak of the kind of impact that not only the federal debt can potentially have, as each and every one of us, in a sense, own a portion of that debt and not in a good way. But then you couple it with some of the more alarming trends in the last couple of years, really since COVID, related to personal debt, consumer debt, things of that sort. Now, those numbers, those numbers are beginning to get pretty concerning. Tell us what's going on and the trends that you're seeing. Yeah, I think they are concerning. I'm more concerned about the government debt than I am about the personal debt. Uh, because, as you say, people who take on too much personal debt, they bear the consequences of that personally. Um, and for that reason, they are somewhat less likely to get overextended. Um, I'm not saying that nobody's fiscally irresponsible personally. All I'm saying is almost nobody is, almost no individual or household is as fiscally irresponsible as government tends to be. Um, and so that worries me more. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, our, our savings rate um, went up a lot during COVID, but that was a forced lockdown. If you illegalize consumption and you just pour money into people's bank accounts, uh, you know, through easy money policy. Well, yeah, of, of course, they're going to they're gonna have money in their bank accounts for a while. But then what happens is you unfreeze the economy and then they can spend that excess money and they spend it. Um, and that causes inflation. That sudden spike in, in demand uh, causes inflation. Um, and the other thing is that as that happens and prices of things go up, we blow through our savings more quickly um, even at the same standard of living, because the things cost more. So if you, you know, if you have something like, you know, probably 15% roughly price hike since um, Biden became president, well, okay, then that means that you have to spend 15% more to have the same standard of living, which means if you are partly spending down savings, you're spending that down more quickly. Well, and, and uh, exacerbating that issue, Jerry, is not only the issue of spending down the savings that you have more quickly, but moreover, for folks that have set money aside in an IRA, a 401k, they're looking toward retirement planning, maybe they've got a little nest egg that they're trying to build to eventually buy a home or put a child through um, college or university, uh, not only are you losing on the spending side, but you're also losing on the savings side through depressed interest rates. I mean, my goodness, we ended last year, I think, uh, across the three indices, uh, now NASDAQ and the S&P, weren't we down like an average of about 22 points? I mean, boy, that's got to hurt. Yeah, uh, more if you're if you're talking about the Nasdaq and about that amount if you're talking about the S and P. Um, so different asset classes went down at different rates, and that's really an important point. So I don't want to get too technical here, but um, what I do uh, in any given week is I don't just look and say, "Did people always ask you? What, you know, what did the markets do this week?" To which I ask, "Which markets?" Yeah, <laughs> because there's lots of them. Yep. Uh, so I look at several hundred of them, not just the Nasdaq and the S and 
S&P and the Dow Jones, but you know various cyclical, various sectors, value, growth, uh, large cap, mid cap, all of them. So what am I doing there? What I'm trying to do is ask not just did markets go up or down, but which markets went up or down relative to each other. So why? Why do, why do you care about that? Because all of us know more than some of us. In other words, most of the knowledge about the economy is distributed out there in the market actors, people. The people know more. I'm an economist. I'm supposed to know a lot about economics, but I could never know as much about the economy as the 8 billion people uh, on planet Earth and, you know, 340 million people in the United States, roughly, and not all consumers, but um, you could say a couple of hundred million people who are, you know, actually participating in markets, they know more than any expert can. And so when markets move, that is the best guide to where things are going. So what I want to know is, like last year, growth stocks like NASDAQ, that went down a lot, uh, but defensive stocks and consumer staples didn't. Utilities actually made money. So what that means is some, some kinds of markets are recession hedges, and some are more risky. So when investors sell the risky stuff and they buy the hedge stuff, the safer stuff, that's a signal that the economy is slowing down. That's a signal that that, that aggregated knowledge of market participants that the economy is slowing down. So last year, we mostly bought, you know, we sold most everything, but what we tended to sell less of or actually actively buy were recession hedges, inflation hedges, and tax hedges. Well, that means that markets were signaling that they think that recession's going to that the recession or something close to a recession, whether it's technically one or not, we don't know for sure, but probably recession's probably coming. Taxes are probably going up, and inflation is not going away. And so far, what the markets were signaling last year has been coming true for this. You know, the big issue, and I want to turn a corner here because um, if we try to get into this before the break, we're not going to have ample time to really unfold or unpack um, some of the nuances. But the, the bigger issue here that sadly doesn't get enough attention, although perhaps during election cycles, as I suggest, there's a bit more focus on it. But at the end of the day, any true sense in Washington, D.C. of panic or concern about the federal debt is something that we've tended to look the, the other way on, even even though it continues to inch higher and higher and higher. And, of course, that's indebtedness that we just can't walk away from. It's something that we pay interest on, and actively so. And that means that's dollars coming out of our tax dollars, which means less resources available for other things, be it defense spending, education, roads and highways, whatever. And so then it really begs the question, if we continue to push the borders out further and further and further, meaning as they're discussing right now, late June, early July, we've got to increase the debt ceiling yet once again. If we fail to do so, it's going to wreak havoc on the the entire economy, blah, blah, blah. But my big concern is the long-term impact on the overall economic health of the nation, given the fact that this is a indebtedness that we cannot escape. You just can't go out and print money and make this one disappear. And if we divide that level of indebtedness across all American households, wow, 
we're facing some pretty staggering numbers and and sadly the potential impact of same and the ability of either party to really get in there and say yeah we're, we're going to start tackling this thing i mean d- during difficult years we say well we don't have the money during the really good years we <laughs> feel as if well we don't need to and at the end of the day you have to wonder How soon before the proverbial roosters come home? We'll talk about that next. Jerry Boyer is with us today. He is an economist and the publisher of Affluent Investor Daily. We'll talk more about that in a moment as well. Meanwhile, hang on to your seats, folks, because we're in for a bumpy financial ride as we begin to unpack some of the significant numbers in Washington, D.C., and how some suggest this equates to almost a level of financial indentured servitude to the greenback more as lifeline continues right after this and now back to lifeline with craig roberts if you want a bit of a frightening experience um and i'm not sure just how accurate all of the details are in the U.S. debt clock, but um, it's pretty close in terms of at least what's being spent as far as the breakdowns as to individual areas of expenditures. Uh, that might be a bit of a bit of a stretch. But if you look at the national debt clock and it runs at a pretty wild pace, we are well over thirty one trillion dollars soon on the way to 32 trillion dollars and if you uh take a look at some of the recent reporting provided by the congressional budget office which is nonpartisan, it just looks at the numbers what's the old saying from dragnet just the facts ma'am and nothing but the facts well the cbo is predicting that at this current spending rate the national debt will be at 46 trillion dollars in just 10 years And um, that number, I've got to believe, must worry our guest today, Jerry Boyer. He is an economist, publisher of the Affluent Investor Daily. And and Jerry, we begin to talk about billions and trillions, and after a while, it's just money amongst friends. (laughs) But I I think, sadly, not only has Congress demonstrated an inability to really comprehend what these numbers mean, but i got to believe for the average American, we think, well, you know, the, the debt is something that we've always had with us, like the poor, and probably not anything to really worry about, because won't Congress do whatever it is that they need to do to print more money or pass higher debt limits, and it all work out in the wash in the end. Is that necessarily the truth? Or is the debt something that we not only all share a stake in, but ultimately should all be worried about? Well, you know, the debt doesn't matter um, right up until the moment that it's the only thing that matters. Mm. Um, And that's why um, there's kind of an illusory um, sense of invulnerability about debt. Um, Dick Cheney once said to me, you know, Ronald Reagan taught us that deficits don't matter. Um, Well, I'm sorry, Ronald Reagan didn't teach us that. Ronald Reagan taught us that if the debt to GDP ratio is 20 to 30 percent, so think of of it this way. Imagine that a household has $100,000 in income and say 25 or $30,000 in debt. Um, Well, a household like that is really not in a bad position, and they can probably borrow more. 
and let's say you know that uh, in, incomes are going up, you have growth again. <laughs> uh, and let's say that the breadwinners are nowhere near retirement. Again, that's not that's manageable, but that's not the situation we're in now. Um, we're now more a household that makes a hundred thousand dollars a year. The American household, um, you know, GD, uh, let's say hundred percent of GDP, and the debt is higher than that. Um, and the annual deficits are higher, and interest rates are rising. Oh, and we're retiring at a fast pace. So the growth of the age cohort of 65 and older, the retirees, is 250% of the rate of growth of working age. In other words, um, for every, some, every person who turns 18, Two and a half people turn 65, uh, or let's make this, since there aren't any half people, you know, for every two people that turn 18, five people turn 65. Uh, so you know, there's a, there comes a point in terms of the scale where debt really starts to matter. And one of the things that, you know, we really face a, you know, a serious situation here, not just in terms of the debt level, but demographically. You know, you can grow your way out of some levels of debt, but let's say that you take 70 million people and wipe them off the face of the earth because they're inconvenient. Um, that's a terrible moral crime, uh, but it also has uh, of lesser importance, but nevertheless, a real effect economically. Uh, so I did a little analysis recently. I gave a presentation where I went back in time and took the, you know, of the people who were aborted every year since Roe versus Wade, calculated the age they would be now, and added them back in uh, to our working age population. And if you do that, we don't have a worker shortage. We don't have a pension crisis. We have a work, um, a, 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 we, we would be growing on balance the workforce rather than shrinking the workforce. So that has severe economic consequences. And there's no quick fix for that. We can change our political culture, maybe, um, and you know, get Congress to have some self-discipline. Uh, that's a tall order, but it's at least possible. But what do you do when 70 million people have been killed? Um, you know, there's no there's no fix to that. No, and, and I'm fascinated by the fact that you've brought this up because it was just recently made public that uh, Beijing, the communist authorities there, uh, are are attempting to try and upend what had been decades of the one-child policy, forced abortion, things of this sort. Now, you know, you look at a nation like communist China and think, well, my goodness, Craig, Jerry, I mean, what are we talking about? Well over a billion people, you can't possibly mean to tell me that they have a labor shortage, but I suppose that they're probably suffering to, to maybe a different degree, but suffering from the same thing we are here, that number one, decades of abortion on demand, of course, as a matter of government policy in uh, in China and, and, and here as a matter of, um, shall we say, differing morals, then you add to that the grain of the population. I mean, for example, baby boomers, of which I are one, 80 million of us that are being added to the Social Security collection rolls every year, which means you have this this huge paradigm shift taking place between those that had been paying into the system for decades that are now recipients from the system. They're not being replaced because we have a suppressed birth rate. And a lot of that, of course, has been exacerbated by the abortion rate in America. So suddenly we have all of these people 
people that say, hey, look, I've paid into this system for decades. I am expecting my full Social Security wage as promised to me by the little letter we used to get and now online from uh, from the Social Security Administration. I'm also anticipating getting the full benefits of Medicare, and I'm not suggesting that Americans who haven't worked hard, paid hard, don't deserve all of that. But my goodness, Jerry, when you combine a slowing birth rate, the grain of America, and just the pure economics of the increased in cost of living. I mean, look here, we just recently saw SSA hand out one of the largest inflation benefits to Social Security that we've seen in probably since the 1970s. All of this has got to come together and paint a pretty bleak economic picture, the federal debt issue notwithstanding. Yes, it does. Um, And uh, again, some crimes are so tremendous that even repentance doesn't erase the the negative consequences of them, uh, you know, maybe even for decades. So it was a generational sin. It's a generational curse to our nation. Um, so, and supply-side policies won't fix that. I'm, I'm all for supply-side economics. Stabilize the value of the dollar and cut taxes to change incentives. But in order for the, you know, cutting taxes to change incentives for people, they have to be here. People in heaven aren't going to act differently because we cut taxes. You know, babies who are with Jesus now um, are not going to be differently incentivized um, because we have you know, lower taxes here. The, the, the tax rate incentives only apply to people who are actually here. So, I mean, if we get enough growth, maybe some people don't take early retirement or maybe they even take late retirement. I mean, if you grow fast enough, maybe people work till 70 rather than 65. You can get a, you can, you know, growth policies can help a little. But, um, you know, you know, you can turn to immigration, but the problem is that immigration is such a hot button issue and conservatives have justifiable concerns um, about immigration, not just being an economic issue, but immigration changing the political dynamic of the country, essentially importing lots of Democratic voters. Um, and the fact that, you know, previous generations of immigrants were, were um, um, kind of assimilated into our culture because we were confident about our culture. So they would go to schools and in the schools they would be told, you're Americans now. You're not Irish Americans. You're not Italian Americans. You're not Polish Americans. You're Americans now, and this is what we believe is Americans. But now immigrant kids come in, and they're told by their teachers, "Don't assimilate. America's evil." And so we can't really, we, you know, the the immigration answer is really fraught with difficulties as well. So I, I would say we're we're in trouble. Now I'm not saying we're in trouble now. I don't think we're on the precipice. These debt levels. You talked about debt levels ten years from now, right? So maybe seven to ten years out, we're at kind of crisis. We're in kind of a crisis zone. I don't think we're in a crisis now, unless we do something really stupid. Like, let's say we play the the game of chicken with the debt ceiling, and nobody swerves, and we default. Well, if we default, then we may well have a debt crisis. But if we kind of keep kicking the can down the road, we can well, we can kick it down the road for another several years. But then I don't see any difference between us, say, and Southern Europe during the European debt crisis, with the sole exception that there were countries that could bail out Spain and Italy and Portugal, um, but there's nobody to bail out the United States of America. So our debt crisis could be as severe or more severe because there's nobody to come to the rescue. 
you of the United Well, States. moreover, the other issue here is, and we'll pick up this discussion around the corner, but the other issue at play here, and I, I you know, I, I want to be fair and balanced about this, and, and Jerry Boyer, if you're just joining us, is, is correct uh, in, in saying that, you know, if, if uh, we don't do anything crazy in the next few years, uh, you know, it probably won't be a crisis of tomorrow, but it will eventually be a crisis. However, there's one issue, <laughs> notwithstanding, that we need to to also potentially factor in, and that is, say we go about behaving ourselves, um, and then the unexpected takes place. I mean, what if Putin does something really stupid, and we find that it's not just a few billion here, a few billion there to help support Ukraine, but we get pulled into a major world war? It has happened in the past. Uh, That could suddenly completely change the dynamic, or some gargantuan natural event say a major earthquake in california that shuts down uh you know silicon valley and and the entirety of the west coast that could be prolonged not weeks months but maybe years in terms of recovery because you're rebuilding homes and roads and infrastructure and industry and all of that i mean i have to wonder whether or not an event that we can't necessarily control or or specifically anticipate, but a, a global or national geopolitical um, natural event that occurs that suddenly puts us significantly on economic defense. That's a question we'll explore after the break. And the other question, too, that I'm curious about, you know, there there seems to be a degree that we talk about wanting to control some of the spending. And, and there's been proposals put forward um, by the Republican Party to do so. But I, I, I kind of sometimes liken that to the current cost of energy here in California. If you've gotten your PG&E bill lately, you've no doubt had a significant degree of sticker shock. And we look at that and say, well, we need we need to do something. And, you know, if, if the answer is make sure you turn out the light above the microwave and nothing more, you're not going to take much of a dent out of your energy costs. And it's still going to be painful every month when that bill comes because you just aren't doing enough to have a significant amount of a difference or economic impact on the spending. We'll talk about that, too. Jerry Boyer with us tonight. He is, as we mentioned, the publisher of Affluent Investor Daily. Information available on the web at affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. A timeout back with more right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Jerry Boyer with us tonight. Again, information available on the web regarding his informative newsletter at affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. Jerry, we're talking about um, the sense of sort of kicking the can down the road in terms of the federal debt. And yet I have to wonder, as I suggested before the break, uh, and that is if we kind of behave ourselves. Well, what if what if some event comes along that we really can't anticipate or, or accurately uh, anticipate or control that could set everything spiraling. What about that potential? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. I just gave a presentation um, at the uh, at Kingdom Advisors, which is the largest gathering of Christian financial professionals um, in the world. And that was my topic. What would the debt crisis look like if we had something like that? And you have to start thinking about what they call black swans or what the trigger events might be. Uh, so I mentioned one, which is just let's say that the debt ceiling fights, you know, that they kind of break out and get crazy enough that there's actually a default. Now, again, 
again, these are not things I'm predicting. These are not what you'd call a base case. You know, when you're in the business of, you know, you know, helping to, you know, work with, um, with uh, money management or macroeconomic forecasting or whatever, you have what you think is probably going to happen, but you also have to consider the things that might happen um, that aren't, that, you know, they probably won't, but they could. Uh, so a debt default, that would be one of those trigger events. What would another trigger event be? Let's say that geopolitical tensions rise with China and they decide to uh, have an act of economic war against us by suddenly selling all those dollars that they hold and selling all those treasury bonds of ours, crashing the treasury bond market, spiking interest rates and causing inflation to get even worse. What about a lost war? Now, it doesn't have to be a lost, you know, all-out war, but a lost proxy war. Uh, let's say things with Russia get out of hand. I mean, that, that could happen. Or let's say there's conflict in the South China Sea, and we find out that maybe they're a little more technologically advanced than we think, and there's a blow to American prestige. You mentioned things like earthquakes. So there are things that can happen. Uh, you can, you know, we can be at like moderate, not high risk, and then suddenly you're at high risk because of the unexpected. And those are some of the things that, um, you know, th- those are some of the things you, you need to think about. Another one would be, you think about the European debt crisis. Euro- Europe is basically like one nation in, in some sense. They have the same currency. Uh, they have separate budgets, uh, but they have a lot of centralized authority. Well, it, you know, the United States equivalent of a country is a state. Well, what if Illinois goes bankrupt? What if New York defaults on its municipal bonds in the same way that you had, um, you know, the nearness of default uh, in uh, some of the southern European countries? Uh, That could have a contagion effect up towards our national debt, um, because maybe we don't have enough, uh, uh, you know, capacity to bail them out. So those are the kinds of things that, as an economist, it's my job to spend some time thinking about at night, about the, the unexpected events that could cause us to have a debt crisis before it would more naturally come just through automatic Debt, you know, debt growth over the next, say, seven or eight years. Let me ask you a question. For, for listeners eavesdropping on this and their heads are reeling, thinking, wow, I mean, I have a difficult enough time controlling my own home or household family budget, let alone looking at what's going on in Sacramento or in Washington, D.C. In, in terms of direct relation to the average taxpayer out there, we look at these things and think, wow, I, I don't want to be a part of that mess. What are we to do? Well, I, I, I think that actually you said it, um, focus on your own budget, because that's the part you can control. Um, so, I mean, unless you have a terrible cataclysm, um, then, you know, it does matter how financially healthy your family is if you have a financially unhealthy country. Uh, so let's say we have a debt crisis like the European debt crisis. Well, I can tell you that people in Europe who had savings to fall back on uh, um, and who maybe had some hedging, maybe they had some gold in the portfolio. By the way, I'm not saying just all gold, gold, gold. That's a hedge. You know, people who weren't highly in debt, people who had earning capacity, uh, people who were spiritually grounded and psychologically grounded uh, and were part of a network, a social network like a church, for example, or some kind of other social network. They got through it a whole lot better than people who weren't. So there are some things you can't control. You can't control if it's going to rain, but you can control whether or not you bring an umbrella. Uh, And financially, I think we all ought to be really working on our umbrellas. I think that there's kind of an opportunity here to prepare for a possible serious crisis. Um, If I'm right, that's not this year or next year. The data don't seem consistent with that. 
that. But I think, um, particularly Christian households, I would really want us to get our act together so that if when the, when things are shaken, we're harder to shake, and we have financial margin and psychological and emotional and spiritual margin, so we're able to help people through tough times. And we so, can. So, but you obviously vote for people who are going to spend less money. Vote for people who are not for abortion. Vote for people who are going to try to restore our birth rate um, and protect the unborn. Vote for people who are against inflationary policies. But the biggest vote you can make is the vote that you make when you're making your own financial decisions as a family. The vote to be prepared. Yeah, and I'm thinking that a lot of us could really benefit from a good dose of many of the lessons that our our grandparents or parents um, learned and passed on to us, though perhaps we've not done a very good job at emulating that, and that is those that live through um, significantly economic challenging times. I'm thinking of the Great Depression, World War II, times when you really had to be careful, when the the availability of consumer credit was virtually non-existent, and if you wanted something, well, you saved for it, and you didn't buy it until you could pay cash for it. Now, of course, there's a practical side to that, that you're probably not going to have 50 grand in the cash to go out and buy a new car, but do you need a new car? Can you get along with the one you've got right now? How about buying a used one? Um, household, uh, you know, expenses uh, in terms of, of purchasing a home, uh, certainly in places like California where that's a pretty tall mountain to try to climb and doing it all to cash, but you can certainly do a better job in terms of managing the amount of money that you spend, not overextending yourself, not buying more house than you can actually reasonably afford to pay for, and at the end of the day, doing everything that you can to try and pay down consumer debt. I know it's tempting to go get the latest whiz-bang and just put it on the card and we'll pay it off over time, but if you look at the kind of interest rate that you're paying, the amount of time that it will take, and your statement will give you that information um, every month, um, it might be a wise thing to rethink your household budget. Want to get some insights, particularly to learn how to become a better investor? We invite you to get more information on uh, Jerry's informative newsletter, The Affluent Investor. Lots of resources available to you by going to his website, affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. Our thanks to Jerry Boyer for that update. All right, speaking of updates, we'll take a brief time out. We've got more for you around the corner as this Thursday edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's fairly common. Folks go out because it's their old alma mater or they're aware of uh, maybe a school that's gotten some good rankings somewhere, somehow, that they think uh, they're doing the right thing or because it has a tuition that begins at, you know, $21,000 per week that that must be the right place to send their kids because, you know, the more we spend for a car, we typically get a better quality car, better quality house. Is that necessarily true, though, when it comes to a better quality education? Well, my guest in this segment of the program might have beg to differ with that. In fact, we're going to talk about how to choose the right college. There is a website, by the way, that you need to know, jot down, and a bookmark called collegeguide.org that gives you insights on to some of the best and worst colleges of the U.S., the reasons why, and most importantly, it's not always what you think they ought to be. Now, if you're someone that typically picks up a copy of U.S. News and World Report, a magazine to which I subscribed for many years, and you think that that's the single place to get information. Let me dispel that myth right now. 
John Zimrick joins us on the program. And John, talk to us a bit about the latest report now, a look at choosing the right college that gives some insights that parents, in fact, uh, might run kind of contrary to what they've otherwise heretofore believed about certain schools. Yes, our emphasis is on showing up what's really going on at these colleges. We're an organization, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, that's existed since 1953. It was founded by William S. Buckley um, immediately after he wrote his famous book, God and Man at Yale, where uh, he was disturbed by just how anti-American and anti-God he found his experience at Yale University, which he would have expected to be a kind of bastion of of Christianity and patriotism, given that it was one of the founding colleges of the United States. But he was quite surprised at what he found. So the Intercollegiate Studies Institute was founded as a kind of support group for students of religious faith, of patriotic values, uh, committed to market economy and to traditional values. And it connects students and faculty across the country as committed to those things. We use our network of contacts associated with all these schools to tell us what's really going on on the campuses. And we use that to produce our biannual 1,000-page report on the leading 130 colleges in the country. Some of the information that you're presenting really, as we say, kind of runs contrary to to popular belief. Uh, a lot of the, the, the popular rankings, I, I would suspect, are based on the name, the prestige, the amount of money that they're charging. But that's not always indicative of the quality of instruction, is it? No, not at all. In fact, uh, sometimes it's almost the, the inverse of that. You'll find that at the most prestigious and expensive schools, they're paying the professors primarily to do research and to come up with elaborate and sometimes esoteric academic studies that only two or three hundred people in the whole world will ever read. Now, that's fine in the natural sciences or in engineering, but in literature, really, do we need the 400th book in the last two years on Shakespeare? Or even worse, do we need books on really esoteric subjects such as like lesbian influence on graphic novels? Um, well, you'll find that the best professors at these schools often spend most of their time on research while teaching is relegated to graduate teaching assistants, you know, people working on their PhDs. All right. That said, one of the the things that you outline inside of this uh, survey, and again, a lot of the information available on the web at collegeguide.org, is this idea that some of the best-known so-called prestigious schools turn out to be train wrecks. What do you mean by that? By train wreck, we mean a place that has a lot of potential, that has many millions of dollars in resources, that is squandering them on political activism or on esoteric subjects or on uh, building elaborate, comfortable student lounges so that the students can, can treat the school like, like a, a resort. Um, and, and several schools we identified, uh, Wesleyan University in Connecticut, which you know might sound like a nice Methodist school, but in fact is entirely secular and one of the most anti-Christian and, and, and I have to say, um, licentious colleges I've ever heard of. Not only are the dormitories co-ed or the, and the bathrooms co-ed, even the dorm rooms are co-ed. Every dorm room can potentially be co-ed, so couples can hook up on the college's dime in the college's dormitory. And the, the, school, uh, the school is a gay lesbian student center that has a lending library of, of really sadistic pornography. It, it's just staggering what goes on at a school named for a man like John Wesley, and that parents are paying $40,000 a year so that their kids can be exposed to this. 
Why does a lot of this information tend to elude some of the more traditional resources? And I don't want to pick on U.S. News and World Report, but why does some of this backstory about, uh, you know, not just the, the, the rankings in terms of the caliber of education, but the, the intellectual atmosphere, the quality of instruction, student life, the, the, what goes on behind the scenes? Why does so much of this tend to sort of elude some of the perhaps better known ranking systems? Well, because they don't have an overt philosophy of education. They're just looking at the numbers. They're trying to be value neutral. And in that way, they're accepting the kind of relativistic philosophy that underlies so much of education. We have an overt educational philosophy. It is the traditional liberal arts mission that helped create the American college system that uh, John Henry Newman talked about in the idea of a university, um, that the Jesuits used in forming their colleges, that the Protestant reformers used in forming Yale and Harvard and Princeton. We're willing to say, yes, we choose one set of values over another. This set of values seems to us more in consonance with the Western tradition. So we are going to choose schools that do a better job of reflecting that tradition. All right, with all that said, you're ranking everything from the intellectual atmosphere, quality of the instruction. Uh, do, you, do you take into consideration the political bent of the school as well? We do. We, we, we look for schools where there is not a uniform, monolithic, typically liberal or feminist or multicultural atmosphere that would make conservative or Christian students feel unwelcome. Um, it's a really widespread problem that colleges are just not wholesome places where you can feel free to express your ideas and, and the values you live by. And, and in the universities are supposed to be a place of free exchange, but they've increasingly become places of indoctrination. So we highlight schools where they aren't necessarily conservative or Christian, but they are open. They, they have academic freedom. Students can feel free to express their views without fear of being graded down or expelled or prosecuted by the school for, for, for saying what they believe. And that's, a, that's not as universal as you would hope, that kind of academic freedom. Academic freedom tends to cut just one way at most colleges. It cuts to the left. There's also another uh, kind of a monster lurking in the background here in the room that a lot of folks tend to kind of ignore, and that is the notion that uh, quite often we, we fail to count the real cost. We look at sort of, okay, this is what the tuition is going to be. You also take a look at uh, the average expense that students will have in terms of student loans and the ongoing indebtedness, too, don't you? I think that, yes, the most important number to look at, because, you know, a lot of schools have high tuition and a lot of financial aid, and they cancel out. The thing to look at is the average student loan debt of a recent graduate. That tells you that's where the rubber hits the road. The average American student graduates with a debt of $25,000. That's more than most of them will earn upon graduation. That's such a weight to be carrying. That's, such a, that's the kind of thing that slows down people's attempts to form families or to get married. It certainly prevents them from owning homes and, and starting a nest egg. So that's the kind of challenge we'd rather see people not have to face as recent college graduates. Folks want to get more information. Uh, we've mentioned about the website, collegeguide.org. Right. And the book we published, Choosing the Right College, which is available from Amazon.com and at major bookstores. Excellent. Again, choosing the right college, an invaluable resource. And again, through Amazon.com, the usual suspects as well. Details, too, on the web at collegeguide.org. And our thanks to John Zamrick for being with us. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.